How's everyone? Good. If you're uh, new and first time here, we want to welcome you. My name's Eric. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. Um, if you guys didn't know, the, the worship team up here was led by Eloy, who is on staff. And so it uh, just a pleasure to have him lead while John's with the men at the men's camp out, walking through Colossians chapter 3. Um, if you're a mom, your son is alive, he is fed, but he is not clean, okay? And they're having lots of fun, and they'll come back today. And I just remember, it's, it's good for Christians to have fun with other Christians. Uh, it reminds us that we don't need the world to have fun, and we don't need the world to have community, and we don't need the world to not feel uh, like we're not alone. And so just always, always, I encourage you to have fun with other Christians. It's, uh, it's good for the soul. Uh, if you've been here past couple weeks, you might have wondered, where was Pastor Eric? Um, first thing I want to tell you is to say, well, why don't you tell us where you go? Uh, well, one of the main reasons is because people don't come to church when they find out I'm gone. And it's not you guys, because you're all here, right? You have no clue. Uh, but there are some people that won't come if I'm not teaching. And um, I get it. I understand it. Uh, but you come to church to hear the word of God, not a personality. And so when, when we're here, you can trust this pulpit. We'll preach the word of God. Uh, it's been doing it for over 40 years. Pastor Roger set the standard, and that's, that's, just, that's our DNA. We're going to teach the Bible. The guys who get up here have been to seminary. Uh, we talk about it as a staff. We plan it over a year out. Um, we take it very serious. We're not just going to hand you off to somebody who has no clue what they're doing. And so uh, they might not be as charming or as a, see, there you go. You guys can laugh. I guess I'm just not funny. Okay, so just uh, keep that in mind. Uh, but where was I? I was in Uganda, I was in Kenya, and then Romania. And uh, it's just one of those things I try to do to A, it uh, strengthens my faith, um, but two, it's, it's biblical in the New Testament that churches help churches. And um, I can't fix anything, and kids don't like to play with me, so I go and teach. That's what I can do. It's my one thing. And so uh, in Uganda, we're just going to have a couple pictures so you guys can see. Uh, one of the, the comforts you should have is that the money we give, they do exactly what they say they're going to do. Okay? Everything they request on those lists, they do exactly what they say. In Uganda, it was cool for me. I hadn't been in a while. And last time I was there, Pastor Wilfred and I, we, we, we prayed over this dirt. And uh, his dream, his vision that the Lord had placed in him, it would be a place a medical center so that uh, kids who were born premature wouldn't die, that there'd be an actual place where they could be born and delivered, uh, that there'd be a school, that there'd be a church, and all of the things we prayed over, God has built and he has done. So every, every brick he said would be there was there. And so it was just great to, to preach at that church and share God's word and then also realize, yeah, you could praise God for all of that. Um, it's neat. Um, is that we need to continue to help them plant churches. You know, we complain because driving to LBC is five, six miles, and that's really hard for us. But, you know, five to six miles for them could be 45 minutes to an hour because there are no roads, like, like paved roads. So if it rains, it's, it's washed out. It has bumps and hills. And if you're a mom with five kids walking five miles and he, it's hard. 
And so uh, the goal is that these kids and these families that get saved in the medical center would go and be discipled. And so they need churches where they can meet and be the word of God taught and be sung and discipled. And so I just want to continue to help them with that. And then Kenya uh, was really fun. Started up in Mount Elgon. And, you know, our church has been there for over 30 years and just uh, helping them become self-sustaining through planting crops. And um, one of the main ones is coffee is that they'd be able to grow that. And then there's that big green machine. It takes it, I'm not a farmer, so I don't really know. And so they take it through and it pairs it down and they're able to sell these coffee beans off and create jobs for, for pastors and seminary training. And uh, so we got to teach, I got to teach a group of pastors there. And if you're wondering, um, when I go on a trip, I can't fix anything and the kids don't wanna play with me. So I teach, that's what I do. And so I taught and it was fun. and. I uh, just got to go down into Katali and teach some pastors there and uh, encourage them in the faith. And, you know, this is what you see in the, in the New Testament, church, churches encouraging churches. Uh, you see the coming alongside and, and partnering with them to do ministry. And then from there, we got to go over to uh, Romania and just see the work that's going on with the orphans. If you're familiar with Romania and the fall of communism from like 1980, 1990 in there, we just, it was unveiled to us the, the tragedy and the evil that had taken place with kids and orphanages. And, and so we got to walk through the book of James with that staff. And uh, just what a blessing it is that Bogdan could have picked anything for his staff uh, he could have said, I want them to learn leadership. I want them to learn communication. I, I want them to learn child development. He said, no, I want them to learn the word of God. Because it's the word of God in their heart that pours out into the children's hearts that helps them long-term. And so that was a great opportunity. And the last part of that trip, I got to go to a gypsy church um, right on the border of uh, Bulgaria and Romania and talk about a forgotten people, an unloved people, you know, living in, in, you know, what we wouldn't even consider a shed gathering and just hearing the word of God taught, knowing that God sent this crazy tall white guy from the other side of the country to love them and encourage them in their faith. And uh, it, it was neat. From old to young, they gathered. So uh, just great uh, for me to be reminded uh, of all the work God is doing, but uh, be encouraged. The things we give towards uh, God uses and we want to be encouraged that God's worshiped, feared, loved, and adored in multiple languages and multiple places. He's a big God, and he's doing great things. And so that was a fun trip. Uh, excited to be back. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to hop into Matthew chapter 8. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for your word, uh, that it's true, and it's biblical, and it's, uh, it can be trusted, and it's helpful. And we just pray your word would just walk into our hearts and draw us close and give us comfort and give us encouragement. Um, help us see uh, what is true and what is false. Uh, give us a hope to cling to. Give us a truth to hold on to and to walk away encouraged and loving you more. And so we just thank you for who you are and what you've done. And we thank you for your word and we thank you for Jesus. We pray that you would speak and not me. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this is one of those fun passages where the meaning of the text is the last thing we want it to mean. And so it's, it's three, three keys to be a disciple. And, you know, the first one is that we would follow Jesus. And this is what I mean by it's the thing you don't want to hear. 
at verse 23, and it says, when he got into the boat, Jesus, his disciples followed him. And here's the part we don't like, is that sometimes following Jesus equals pain and suffering. I think oftentimes we want to think that somehow following Christ precludes us or saves us from the suffering, and that the suffering we endure is just a result of sin uh, in the world. But what I want you to notice immediately in the text is no one has committed adultery, no one has lied, no one has lust in their heart, and there's no hate, there's no anger in here. This is just simply the cause and effect of following Jesus. And so that means for us that you could be doing everything right, you could be following Christ, and the result of that following could lead to an absolute storm that terrifies you to your absolute core. And you see, it's in the storm that it reveals what type of relationship do we have with Jesus. It reveals what are the heresies and idols that we've built in our own hearts that that cause us to think, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And you have to think the disciples, I mean, they've already given up parts of their life to follow Jesus. As we've walked through the book of Matthew, we've seen that they were uh, many of them were fishermen, and they were uh, earning you know, their money, their wage by the sea with their dad, some of them on their own, some of them had boats. And that Jesus walks by and he says, pick up, you know, follow me. And so they've given up their income, they've left their families. You'll see in Matthew 10 that Matthew as a tax collector gives up his business and he comes and follows Jesus. And so they've already given up much. And then on top of it now, They're going to be brought to the edge of death with fear struck in their hearts in a mighty way. And so if you're a Christian and you think, man, I've I've been through the storm. I've, I've had a hard time. That does not mean that there will not be more. And it doesn't mean that you're necessarily doing anything wrong. You see, Jesus invites us to follow us or follow him into the deepest, craziest places. As we look through the Gospels, you see, you know, Jesus takes them into a culturally charged area. He takes them into Samaria. It's like, Jesus, we don't talk to those people. They're, they're bad. And she's a woman. We can't. He goes and he talks to her. He puts them in awkward situations and he challenges their cultural narrative and their cultural ideals. He talks to the tax collectors he, he brings them in amongst the Pharisees and he calls them the brood of vipers. Like, Jesus, do you know who they are? You're gonna get us killed. And Jesus is like, I know, I'm trying, I'm trying. It's the point of the mission. And the disciples are like, what are you doing? And so he's, all, he's always bringing them into conflict. He's bringing them into suffering. He's bringing them, imagine the feeding of the 5,000. And like, Jesus, there's only two fish and some bread. And he's like, it's gonna be fine. So following Jesus uh, necessitates hard times, awkward times, uncomfortable times, times of fear, times of questioning, times of doubting. And so as we walk through this, it's, it's very important that we see that all through Scripture, following Christ does not mean safety, does not mean worldly pre- pleasure, worldly comfort, you know, it's what I spent a lot of time in Africa walking through is that 
Christ does not say we won't suffer. He is not the God of the Bible that says you will be happy and you will love life and life will love you. Just to walk through some of them, you think of John the Baptist. He's called the greatest man ever born of a woman, right? Matthew chapter 11. And so the greatest man ever born of a woman, Jesus' own words, how is his life? He lives in the wilderness wearing camel hair and honey, and his life ends in prison with his head being cut off as a gift to a princess. That doesn't sound amazing, does it? And yet that is the greatest man born of a woman, his life and his lot. You look at the book of Job. Job is just a righteous man before the Lord. And God simply says, okay, Satan, you think he won't love me if you take all his possessions and you take his family? And so Job and his faithfulness gets to lose everything. And then God says, you know what? You're, you're also going to lose your health. And Job remains faithful. There wasn't a sin issue. It was just a part of being a Christian. You look at Noah. Hey, build this ark. And then you're going to watch the whole world be destroyed. And you're going to start over. Simply because you are a righteous man who is trusting the Lord. So when it comes to following Christ, this is why Jesus, through the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the first eight chapters of Matthew, he's telling them, count the cost, count the cost, be ready. There will be a cost simply for following Jesus. That's why the preceding passage, he says, look, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's warning them, you're going to follow me, but that doesn't mean you'll have a place to sleep that doesn't mean that people will welcome you into their homes. It doesn't mean that you're going to be welcomed into cities and rejoiced and praised. The Son of Man, Jesus, the Son of God, he's going to have no place to lay his head. And if you follow him, that could be you too. Now, let's not mistake the storm, the suffering. That is different than when we are being punished or disciplined for our sin. Sometimes we do dumb things, and those dumb things have consequences. That does not mean you're in a storm. Okay? You look at Jonah. Why was he in a whale? Because he wouldn't listen. You look at David. He loses his firstborn child. Why? Because he had that child in adultery. David's told that his house would have violence all through his days. Why? Because he killed the man and brought violence in his own home to the point where David's own children would raise up and try to kill him. See, there's a consequence of sin and that God says he disciplines those whom he loves. That is not a storm. There's no sin committed in the passage that leads to the storm. Simply, it's the cause and effect of following Christ. And so as you think through being a disciple, one of the things you have to become comfortable with, one of the things you have to wrestle with is there will be a great storm simply from following Jesus. And are you ready for that storm? Are you prepared for that storm? Because the disciples, as many things as they've given up, as many things that they've seen, this draws out in them one of the most uh, <clears throat> telling signs in all the gospel. 
So this is point two. So we follow Christ. Point two, we need to be ready for the storm. We need to be ready for the storm. And here's what makes me think they weren't. As you, as you read through this in verse 24, it says there was a great storm and they were being swamped. So you have to think little boat, not cruise ship. And you have to think waves coming in, water occurring and building on the boat. And they're literally terrified. And this is what Jesus said. They woke up Jesus saying, Lord, save us. Mark chapter 4, 38. This story is told in three different gospels. It adds this part. I want you to see this. It says, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's probably the last thing you want to ask the Savior is, do you even care? It's about to go to the cross and pay for your sins and bear the wrath of God. And the question is, do you even care? You see, they weren't ready for that. See, within all of us is that question that when the storm hits, there is some part of us that says, God, do you even care? How could you let this happen? How could you let this be? God, this can not be. Do you even love me? See, if you're not ready for the storm, one of the first things you'll do is question the love of God. Question the love of Christ. Because within all of us, there's this unsettled, unspoken heresy that by being a Christian, we're somehow saved from hard times. We're saved from bad relationships. We're saved from illness. We're saved from economic tragedy. We're saved from persecution. And when that is drawn out in us, it leads to that questioning. Teacher, do you not care? So it's very important that you realize getting in the boat does not mean safety, does not mean comfort from the world, does not mean pleasure, does not mean happiness. It means that you get to be with Jesus. See, as we look through the New Testament, it's very important. Do a case study. There's illness all through the New Testament. Epaphrodites in Philippians is sick. Paul says, pray for him. Timothy in 1 Timothy is sick. Paul encourages him. Paul had very poor eyesight. As you read through Galatians, it says that he's writing in large letters so that he can read it. In other epistles, he says, don't be scared when you see me because he was hard to look at because his eyes were so uh, infected and failing. You look no further than Jesus going to the cross. You look at Stephen standing firm before he's persecuted. So there's nothing in the New Testament that should make us think that we won't suffer. And here's the thing, sometimes suffering is the plan. God says, you're gonna go through this and I want you to draw close, I want you to trust, and I want you to love me regardless of the circumstances. It'll be a testimony to you, it'll be a testimony to the world, it'll strengthen your faith and, faith and it will glorify God. And so you have to think through what is it that would ever cause you to utter the words in Mark 4, 38? God, do you even love me? See, there's some of you, and I, I, it's a privilege to serve in this church, is that I've seen you go through cancer, and cancer doesn't scare you. You know what? If I die, I'm going to go be with Jesus. But if, if I stay, I'm going to worship Jesus, right? That's Philippians 1, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But man, if your kids hated you, 
because you followed Jesus. Now that would scare you. That would scare you. Some of you, you're not afraid of losing your job. You've been poor. You've lived off less. You're not afraid to love Jesus through poverty. Oh, but don't take my friends. Don't take my achievements. Don't take my United States privileges, you know, whatever it is. What is it inside of you that would cause you to say, God, do you even love me? Because there's something you fear and the storm will bring out that fear. I mean, you see this through the disciples. They were afraid over and over again and God draws it out through circumstances. I mean, you even see Peter, right? You would think he just learned that Christ had been raised from the dead, that Jesus is God, he is the king, he is in charge. And then he's in Galatia and he's afraid to tell the Jews that Jesus is the Christ also to the Gentiles. He's afraid that the Gentiles, that loving them and being with them, that his Jewish friends won't love him and they won't want to be with him and that he won't have a seat at the table with all his Jewish friends and Paul rebukes him. He says, no, there's going to be a cost. These Jews might stone you. They might hate you. They might not let you in their house. You can't follow Christ and be saved from those conclusions, from those consequences of following Jesus. So part of being ready for the storm is knowing what are the things in your life that were ever taken away, that were ever challenged, that were ever put in jeopardy, that would cause you to utter the words, Teacher, do you not care about me? Because that's the one thing we hopefully never say to God, right? Parents, do you love it when your kids say, you don't even love me? You love that, don't you? Isn't that one of the meanest, harshest, most unfair things a kid could say? They have no clue what you've been through, the depths you've gone to, the nights you've labored, the thoughts you've thought. Now, they can question your knowledge because you're not Jesus, right? You don't know everything. Sorry if you thought your parents did. They don't. But don't question the love, right? And so part of preparation for the storm is realizing what is it that could be challenged in my life that I would question the love of God. The second part now of being ready for the storm is that you have to recognize the one who was in the boat with you is far more scary than the storm because he's the one who commands the storm. He's the one who can control the storm. And you look at this verse, just walk through this. Verse 26, they don't recognize that. And this is why he says in verse 26, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Like, do you know who's in the boat with you? Why are you afraid? This is such a harsh saying because he's literally saying, you cowards. You cowards. I speak into existence the world. I'm going to the cross to pay for your sins and you doubt my love for you, you cowards. Oh, you'll stand strong for the restoration of Israel. But when it brings you pain and fear and trembling, you question my love. 
Oh, you who have little faith. This is why it's important that we remember the one in the boat is far scarier than anything the world can ever, ever do to us. You write this down and you read through this in your own time, but read through Revelation chapter one. And you read through the description and depiction of Christ coming back. It says that he is a man that John saw and he has fire in his eyes. He has a sword in his mouth. He has bronze feet and he speaks like the oceans roar. John says that when he saw that Christ, he falls to the ground wishing that he would die. And you got to think John's a disciple. He's seen Jesus before and seeing Jesus in this way, says uh, he falls at Christ's feet and he's in absolute, utter fear. Part of preparing for the storm is fearing who's in the boat more than you fear what's outside the boat. Fearing Christ because he's the one who determines hell and heaven. He's the one who speaks things into creation. He's the one who can calm the storm. It's more important to fear him than your children, than your job, than your ability to perform, than your friends, than your country, than your freedoms. All of the things we fear, losing, fail in comparison to what Christ could do. This is why Jesus warns them, Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. Because the one who can kill the body, they can't save you from hell, but I can. Fear Christ. And so if you don't have a healthy fear, reverence, and awe of Jesus, that storm's gonna hit you and rock you and shake you in a way to where you think one of three things. Either Jesus doesn't love me, he's not powerful enough to save me, or he's not smart enough to know how to protect me. You see, in this storm, there's one of three things that get challenged. It's either his love, his power, or his knowledge. And so if you're not ready for that storm, you haven't evaluated your heart, you haven't looked through what scares you, and you haven't done verse 27, you haven't marveled at the work of Christ, you're gonna find yourself saying very fast, you can't love me. It makes no sense to me how you could love me, but that my kids would hate me because I follow you, because I believe marriage is between, because I think that you can't do those drugs, because I believe you can't live in that way. I don't think there's another way to God. There's no way you could let me have this illness and love me. Or you're not powerful because if you were all powerful, you would take it away. There's no way an all powerful, all loving God would let me go through this. Seeing being ready for the storm, it's understanding his knowledge is perfect, his power is perfect, his love is perfect. The answer is simply the one you don't want to hear. Going through the storm is a good thing because the one who's in the boat's far scarier than what's outside of the boat. See, Jesus is able to sleep. That's how scary the storm is. The storm is only scary if you don't know who's in the boat with you. Jesus has the ability to sleep. And this is beautiful, why? Because you see his humanity and his deity. He's Lord commanding creation. 
his humanity. He's tired from the work he's been doing and he's sleeping. And the two join together in power and humanity and he's sleeping, he's resting. Why? Because he knows it's just a storm. He knows it's just a storm. See, a storm's gonna do one of two things to you. It's either gonna kill you and take you to heaven or eventually it's gonna end. That's the beauty of this part. Verse 26, he says, he rebukes the winds and the seas and there was a great calm. The calm will come. The calm will come. Question, question is, will it come in your timing? No, it won't. Jesus could have ended the storm at any point. He didn't even have to let there be a storm. He could have told them a storm was coming. He could have warned them, right? His knowledge, he didn't tell them that. His power, he didn't prevent that. And in his love, he didn't stop it from happening. He loved them, he knew, and he was powerful. And at the end of it comes a great calm. So in preparation for the storm is understanding the storm is not always bad. Sometimes God says, you're gonna go through and it's gonna be good. Because at the end of the storm, there will be a calm and you will marvel at his power. You will marvel at his ability. See, there is a cost to following Jesus. And this is why as we're walking through the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to over and over again say, count the cost. See, what the people see is this great man of power and ability and miracles. And like, we want to follow you. And he's like, following me isn't what you think it is. Following me isn't mansions and perfect health and notoriety and power and authority. It's sleepless nights on dirt, picking up your cross, persecution, rejection, but you will have me forever. This is oftentimes where you'll see uh, a dating couple and then they'll come to Christ and they're so amped and they're like, how can we you know, be involved and we wanna serve and we wanna follow Jesus to the end of the earth and we wanna be missionaries and you're like, oh, praise God. And they go, where do you guys live? Oh, we live together. Oh, well, you need to move out. What? No, 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 that cost us money. Well, yeah, the Bible says you leave and cleave. When he's committed to love you as Christ loved the church, he is vowed before God and man. He has signed and he is sealed and committed. Then you may come together. What, you mean following Jesus? I need to move out and spend more money? Yep, that could be it. Might cost you an extra grand a month to live somewhere. Might cost you getting a roommate. It might cost you living with your parents. I don't know what it is. That's a part of following Jesus. Well, that's not very convenient. It's a part of following Christ. See, there's decisions from following Christ that are going to cost us as this crazy world progresses. And I mean, for gosh sakes, they tried to tell us we couldn't come to church. You might be fined for going to church one day. You might be told you can't read your Bible in public. You might be told you can't share your face. You might be punished because you won't put a boy on a girl's team because you know it's a boy and not a girl. Might lose your job for that. 
You might lose your job because you can't agree to an agenda, an ideology that's being forced in your company. See, this is a part of the storm that Christ says you would fear him more, marvel at him more than what that world could do to you. And say, I will take that cost because it's better to be in the boat with Jesus than to fear the world and change Christ. See, when you start saying, oh, God doesn't care if we live together and he doesn't care if we cohabitate. He just cares that we're loving and kind and gracious. You've now changed Jesus and put yourself in a different boat because you've taken away the storm. There's no cost for you to follow. You've just changed the rules and said, oh, look at this. God agrees with my sin. There's no sin in that scenario. There's no cost. There's no storm. Being ready for the storm says, I see what it means to follow Jesus. And I trust him more than whatever the world can do to me. I'd rather be in the boat with the waves crashing than on the beach with an umbrella comforted by the world but ignored by Christ. Point three is to grow in your faith. See, this is the beauty of being a disciple. You follow, you prepare, and then you grow. Where do we see the growth? Verse 27, it says, and then the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, I think sometimes we forget to marvel at Christ. You read through the New Testament, it's like he speaks the world into existence, he calms the storms, he raises the dead, he heals the lame, And we're like, yeah, that's okay. But do you know there's an AI out there that'll write a novel for you if you tell it to? Do you know there's electric cars? Do you know that there's men going to the moon? See, we marvel at man. And we're apathetic towards Jesus. That's a problem. When you marvel at man more than you marvel at Christ, you will always fear the storm more than you fear the one who causes and ends the storm. The growth is is being able to look at the storm, see the calm, and then marvel at what God has done through the storm. That's why it's so important as you look through your life, you make these monuments and remember how did God get you through that phase and how did God get you through the next phase and how did God get you through the next phase? So I love being at one church for a long time as I've seen people where they've been given an an illness, a sickness, and they just trust the Lord. And then the next one comes and they still trust the Lord and the peace and the calmness in their hearts and in their minds. And I just, I pray, man, God, I pray that I would have that kind of faith that I wouldn't have some type of tragedy in my life call me to question your love, your knowledge, or your power. See, it's because you grow in each storm. You understand in each storm that he loves you, he's with you, and that the calm will come. It just might not come in your timing. See, the growth becomes, you become more comfortable being uncomfortable. You become more comfortable, I'd rather be in the boat with Jesus 
than watching the storm from the outside without him. I'd rather suffer through earth and go to heaven than love earth and go to hell. It's better to be with Jesus. I know who the one on the boat is and what he can do. See, our goal in this should be that we could sleep like Jesus. Amen? Just able to, the storm's raging, the water's coming in. It's like, man, Jesus hasn't stopped it. Oh, it's bedtime. Looks like I better go to bed. Because that's kind of, that's, that's how this sets up. Is Jesus has not calmed the storm, but he's sleeping. He's sleeping, we should be sleeping. And if the water's still raging, there's a purpose in it raging. And you can't make the storm stop. And the greatest thing you could do is trust him, marvel at him, and go to sleep and rest. And it might be there in the morning, and the next morning, and the next morning, and the next morning. But he'll get you through that day, and the next day, and the next day. Because he can stop it. And if he's not, he's doing something in it and through it, and it's for your good and it's for his glory. This is how we see the progression in Romans chapter five, verses three through four. It says, not only that, it says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why do we rejoice in our sufferings? That makes no sense. Because it's in suffering that it separates our love from the world and our love for God. It's that pressure cooker that says, what do you really love? You love your bank account? You love your family? What do you love more than you love Jesus? And in that suffering, when you choose Jesus and you trust Jesus, he says, rejoice. You've grown closer to God. You've trusted him more. You've marveled at his work. You know he's your savior. Okay? Rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that suffering, here it is, produces endurance. See, the disciples, they had passed many tests. But this one, they hadn't gone through yet. They hadn't been brought to the edge of death yet. They haven't had to face, do I care about life or do I care more about Christ? But as they progressed, what do we see the disciples? They're persecuted, beaten, and killed for their faith. You don't get to that maturity overnight. You get to that maturity one storm after another storm. Each storm prepares you for the next. You get to that place of calm and you marvel at Christ's faithfulness, his love, his consistency, his sufficiency, his power, his majesty. When the next storm comes, you're not caught off guard. You have a little bit more hope. You have a little bit more patience, right? So it produces endurance, and endurance, catch this, produces character. So when you've built that ability to trust the Lord, it's been months, maybe years, and you're just trusting the Lord, that pain's still there, that conflict is still there, it's not resolved, and you're enduring, it says it produces character. Well, what's character? Character is the unwavering commitment that you're not gonna change Jesus. You're not a hypocrite. Hypocrite lacks character. Hypocrite says, I love God, but I don't trust him. Jesus has taken me to heaven, but he can't tell me what to do. He sets hypocrisy. Character is, he's the Lord of my life. I'm gonna do what he says, 
even if it costs me everything, if it costs me every relationship, if it costs me every dollar, every white blood cell, every American freedom, every fill in the blank, I will trust him. That's character. And it says suffering runs you through this progression of growth to enduring to character and character produces hope. See, in that character that you will not change Christ, you have hope because you've marveled at his amazing work, his amazing love. It gives you hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It says we have hope, why? Because we have the Holy Spirit which reminds us of God's love. It's the helper, it reminds us, it reminds us that God loves us, God loves us. Now here's a question I want you to think very carefully about. How do you know God loves you? Because how you answer that will greatly determine how you process this process. If you're thinking right now, I know God loves me because of I have a great marriage, I have a great house, I have great kids, I have a great country. That's why you think God loves you. The second one of those is taken away, your first instinct will be to say, God doesn't love me because my spouse doesn't love me, my home's not there anymore, my kids don't like me, my job's not there. If your love is based on what he's provided for you, then when those provisions cease, so will your idea that he loves you. How do you know he loves you? Because he went to the cross for you. That's how you know he loves you. Love is not the absence of pain. Love is taking our place, doing what we could not. He loves us simply because he wants to. There's no correlation between suffering and love. God's own son suffers in our place. The growth is trusting him and loving him through that process, growing in your faith. Growth implies pain. Not all of you have had growing pains, but they're real. They happen. Right? They hurt. They're hard. But God's word says it's good for us because it helps us marvel at his work. Marvel at what he has done. You know, to kind of wrap this up, the question you have to answer is, do I truly believe with all my heart that the one who is in the boat with me is greater than everything that's outside of the boat? The early Christians and kind of into like the medieval ages, um, they would paint a picture of this passage and it'd be this huge storm, this little boat, and it was to remind them that the one who's in the boat is greater than the world. And that as a Christian, you're essentially on a boat in the middle of a raging storm. And you can sleep because of the one who's with you in the boat. See, it's been the challenge for Christians since the very beginning. Can they trust Jesus through the deepest, darkest parts of their life? Can they trust that there will be a calm can they marvel at his power and authority? But what we can't do is let the storm challenge our love and affection and commitment to Jesus, to not change him, be angry at him, 
not follow him. Not, we don't want to question his love. We want to say, God, when I get in that storm, how can I sleep as Jesus sleeps? How can I look at the storm and trust you? I know there's going to be irrational feelings and irrational thoughts. And that's when, you know, the only thing I can think of is this, is that, you know that hymn, How Sweet It Is to Trust in Jesus? There's a, there's a line in there that says, oh, for grace to trust him more. That's where you got to come in the storm and say, God, I don't want to change you. I know you love me. I know you're powerful. I know you're perfect. But my heart and my emotions and my mind are wild. Help me trust you. Help me know the one who's in the boat is greater than the storm. Some questions for us to think through. Is there a place that would be hard for you to follow Jesus to? Whether it's, you know, going overseas with your children, your health, your finances. Like, God, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if you asked me to give that up, if I'd give that up. Start praying that God would loosen your hands around the grip you have on that. Two, what are some unexpected storms you've been through? Think through how has God provided in the past and let it give you hope that he'll provide in the future. Three, do you lack faith in any area of your life? Do you truly believe that God loves you? Do you truly believe God's powerful, that God has knowledge, that God will work all things for your good and his glory? Like, is there an area where you don't trust him? Do you not trust him with your health? Do you not trust him with your kids? And say, God, help me trust you, whatever might come. Four, what gets in the way of you following Jesus? You know, is it your job? Is it your family? Is it your economic status? Is it your, you know, place of living? Is it your hobby? Is there anything that causes you to love him less that gets in the way that's a stumbling block to marveling at his work and trusting him through the storm? And instead of running to your love, you run to him in the storm. Five, how can you grow in your faith? Because that's what's going to help you in the next storm. And then six, what is the relationship between marveling at Jesus and faith in Jesus? And how can you get better at both? Christian family here, we have to marvel at Jesus. Because if we don't marvel at Jesus, when the storm comes, we will not think he has the ability to stop the storm. That's why our minds have to constantly go back to who he is and what he's done and just marvel that when he speaks, the ocean stops. That when he speaks, the earth is formed. That when he speaks, the demons leave. That when he speaks, the world is upheld by the words of his power. Because the more we marvel at Christ, the more we'll sleep through the storm. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the one who is able to cure all things. He is able to fix all things. He is able to end all things. And God, oh, for grace, we pray to trust you more. Then we could sleep through the storms of life, knowing you love us, you are with us. You are all-powerful and all-knowing. And you are working your plan to perfection in the midst of our fear and failure and sin and shame and guilt. And God, we pray as the storm rages and the water fills the boat, 
that we would simply remember that you are in the boat with us and our hearts would calm and our minds would settle and we would simply marvel at who you are and what you've done. It's my great prayer that we would take this time to now sing and celebrate who you are and what you've done. We'd marvel at your glory, marvel at your power and know that that glory and power rest in the boat with us. Always. We thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.